Welcome to Book Me, conversations with writers sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Today, our host, Costas Halabrezos, will be speaking with Quentin Casey. Imagine that you're 21 years old. Imagine also that you've just gone into business and you're $700,000 in debt. How would you feel? Hopeful? Stressed out? Would you be cautious in making money to pay off that big debt? Would you take risks? This was the real-life situation of Catlin Nickerson, who just got into the fishing business, like his father and grandfather before him. Catlin and his four crew members, ranging in age from 25 to 33, all died in a powerful storm while fishing for halibut in the Atlantic, about 200 kilometers south of Halifax, in February of 2013. In his book, The Sea Was in Their Blood, Quentin Casey has taken us deeply into the lives of those five young men, their families, their challenges, their communities, and their dangerous industry. Quentin Casey, thank you for joining us on Book Me. Thanks for having me. You devote uh, quite a generous portion of the book to the biographies of those five young men and their two short lives. Why did you choose that approach? I think there was a few reasons. Uh, one is I really didn't think that people would care what was happening in that storm if people didn't know who was on that boat. So if you just had a name and a little bit of biographical information that people wouldn't connect with those, those guys. So I thought that you really had to explain who they were and where they had come from uh, so people would really be connected to them and, and really care about what was going on with them when they were out at sea. You succeeded. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, tell us about Kathleen Nickerson, the, the 21-year-old captain, and, and what led to that fateful day in February? Well, like you said, he he was 21. He He had gotten his own boat when he was 20. $700,000 for the, the gear, lobster license in a boat. So he's got this enormous, enormous investment. Um, he's got the pedigree because, like you said, his father, his grandfather were both fishermen. His grandfather was one of the best in Woods Harbor. Uh, but, he, you know, he had, to, he had to catch a lot of fish and there was a lot of pressure on him to do that because he, he got into the fishery, unfortunately, at a time there was a bit of a downswing. So the lobster price was quite low. So when he's fishing for lobster during the winter, he's not making a lot of money. So he goes long lining for halibut in, in 2013. Uh, dangerous time of year to be out on the ocean, 200 kilometers off the coast in February. I would never want to be out there. So there's a lot of pressure to, to make a return on that investment. So 21 years old, but he had a lot of responsibility, that's for sure. And even at 21, he already had a reputation. Uh, I think they, they called him fierce right. because of his <laughs> approach to fishing. Yeah, well, he, he was known as being very aggressive. And I guess there's two sides to that. The first is that that aggressiveness made him very appealing to two of the fishing companies down there, guys who own these fishing companies who wanted Catlin to fish for them because they knew he was going to push harder, he was going to stay out longer, and he was going to catch fish. The flip side of that is that he was reckless as well. And there were a couple incidences before they were lost where they went out on a day to haul traps when nobody else did. He almost lost two guys off the back of the deck that day. And the first trip that they had halib halibut fishing before they were lost, uh, they came in when a gale was just starting to blow. And people told them after that, you've got to come in earlier. You can't be stuck out there when these storms are coming across. So, you know, it's two sides of that coin. Aggressive, you have to be aggressive because you can't be sitting on the wharf when there's two meter seas. You've got to go and catch those fish. But he was also 
people said, pushing it a little bit too far. Now, all of these young men grew up in nature, really, and this comes through in in all five biographies in a way. You know, they're playing in the woods, uh, they're out on the boats with their fathers or their uncles, uh, learning about the lore and the, and the actual skills of, of fishing. And then they went to school, and they're sitting in a building for most of the day. How much does that contrast affect their life choices by the time they hit their teens? Right. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And, and I think the whole outlook toward education is very interesting, where, um, like you said, you know, they're out on wheelers, they're out on dirt bikes, they're making camps, they're doing all this stuff. And then especially uh, Joel and Billy Jack, they were not scholars by any sense, you know, and, and their parents totally admit that they did not like school. And obviously, they both dropped out. Billy Jack dropped out, I think, grade seven. So, Yes. Uh, you know, it's just like it's not it's just aptitudes. It's like Billy Jack was a very smart, talented guy, but he didn't have that aptitude where he's going to sit there and he's going to be doing multiplication tables for two hours. So, yeah, it's not surprising then that at 13, he's on the back of a fishing boat, you know, making like 60 grand a year. I mean, as basically a kid doing a man's work, it's 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 interesting that they would, you know, they, they just it's a different path, really, for these guys. For a lot and, of them. And as you point out, as soon as they start seeing the guys who are just a few years older than them, say in junior high, uh, leaving school, quitting school and getting those kind of jobs and getting the things like the four wheel drives, uh, everything, that's quite a pull. Yeah, I really like the quote, uh, Graydon Mood said, uh, you know, like you're riding a bike. And then the guy two years ahead of you, he's got probably like an F-150 and a wheeler. I mean, it's sort of a no-brainer, especially when you're in high school and that kind of stuff, you know, you see that and you just probably want to go for it, which a lot of them do. Now, they all have different personalities. What was the state of mind of the five before they went out on that final trip on the Miss Alley? Yeah, that's one of the, the parts of the story where it's there's gray. It's not black and white. Like, it's not like they were all gunning to go out there and they all wanted to stay. Uh, Catelyn was very aggressive, so he was the captain. He had the ultimate say. He wanted to go out. Joel would go out in anything. Nothing was going to put him back at the wharf. He enjoyed it. He enjoyed he, it. Yeah, the, the sloppier the, the better. Right. The, so the rougher it got, the more he enjoyed it. Um, like fishing was what he wanted to do. Billy Jack was only going for the money. He loved carpentry. He didn't want to be out there except for the money. And he was hoping that this was his last trip. Then he would come in. He'd start building homes on Cape Sable Island. Uh, Tyson had a daughter, uh, you know, a very recent daughter. So he was out there for money too. And Cole really got scared by the first trip and really didn't want to go back. And he actually, you know, cried a little bit before he went. And he really only went back out of a sense of duty. He didn't really want to be out there. And then during the storm, Tyson and Cole both expressed that they didn't want to stay. They wanted to get out of there. But Billy Jack and and, and Joel were probably more supportive of staying. And ultimately, Catelyn, you know, it's his decision as captain. Now, there are remote sensors and boys out there that give us some of the data. How bad was that storm? Pretty terrifying, I think. You know, nightmarish. Sandy Stoddard, uh, you know, a guy who's been out in hurricanes for 40 years fishing, you know, said it would be nightmarish. The biggest wave recorded by the Lahave buoy was 18 meters. And as I note in the book, that's as big as the waves during Hurricane Juan. So if you picture... That's about a five-story, five, six-story building. Yes. So it's not, you're not looking out at the waves. I mean, these waves are towering above you. Um, and, and the wind... Catlin reported 80 knots. So 80 knots is hurricane speed. It was in the dark, snow, they couldn't see anything. I mean, the boat must they have They lost just their been, lighting? 
they'd lost their their lighting, their their overhead lighting. So they were really in the dark. And I mean, the boat would have been really all over the place. The search for the Miss Alley and the crew involved many agencies. Uh, it attracted huge media attention, not just in Atlantic Canada, but all through Canada into the United States. And it became a political issue that went, went straight to the federal cabinet. What were some of the factors driving all of that? That it went to so far up? Yeah, Peter McKay at one point, his office was sending directly messages that he wanted to be personally updated on what was going on. So I guess it's it's that maritime connection. And like you said, it was it was a national story because you've got these five really young guys lost in the storm. Even CNN came calling for updates. So it's it's something that really I think captures people's imagination. It's it's so out of the ordinary for most people that you know in February a lot of people are thinking about going on a cruise or going down south. These guys are out there in February on a fifty foot boat. I mean, it's for a lot of people. It's like it's just a story that really grabs people, and the fact that they were so young, you know, it really pulled at a lot of people. And at the emotional level, there were all the extended families of all these five young men and the entire community who'd been through tragedies before this. Right holding out this hope that they they might have somehow survived that. How much did that drive the decision-making of all the agencies that were out there trying to just find something? Right. Yes. Um, so there, there was that initial hope that they had gotten into the life raft. Um, and there was a lot of criticism later about not staying with the boat when they found the hull and, and the various aspects of the search. But then I, I think that later on after time went by, I think people realized that everything that the rescue center did made sense. And when you look at it with hindsight, the, the ability to survive without a survival suit in February, it's it, it's measured in minutes. So I think that there was a lot of criticism at the time because there were these little nuggets that you could cling to that Maybe they're down in the hull. You know, maybe they're in the life raft. You know, maybe they were picked up by a tanker. That's what Catlin's mother thought at one point. So, um, but then when you look back with a bit more clear eye and focus, you, you see that, yeah, well, I, I guess they, they did handle it the way they should have. Uh, Woods Harbor and, and Cape Sable Island are like so many coastal communities in Atlantic Canada that have been marked by fishing tragedies, similar with the other natural resources, things like the coal mining towns, for instance, who've been through uh, tragedies. The loss of those lives really marks the the families and the friends left behind. I'm wondering for you how difficult it was to interview them and, and what was the kind of range of reaction you got as you approached people? Uh, that was definitely one of the biggest challenges, just trying to, you know, you're trying to maybe get at the story, but you also have to be so respectful of what people are going through. And, you know, you don't want to make any this situation worse for them. Um but as I've said to people before, I really found that people were receptive. Um, a lot of the parents were very, it seemed, happy to talk about their kids, you know, to talk for an hour or talk for two hours about them growing up, their childhood, what they enjoyed doing, why they were fishing. So I think a lot of people did enjoy uh, discussing those lives, that, that it meant something to them to have them be remembered, talked about, that they weren't forgotten, that somebody that somebody was interested in them. What's happened since the loss of those five young men on the Miss Alley that, that might prevent a similar situation from arising? You know, you have those economic factors. These people have big debts. They have to pay them off. Uh, you've got the weather we have on this coast. Yeah, well, I, mean, I guess people are saying that it's maybe changed the outlook for people there a little bit, not to push so hard. Uh, apparently, people are wearing PFDs more than they used to. 
Personal flotation device. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, PFD. So um, it's not going to save you when you go in the water from the cold, but, you know, at least there's a body or something if you if you pass away. Survival suits? Survival suits, uh, I don't know about that. I mean, you can't wear them when you're working. So that that's the thing. You can't be hauling in the line, hauling the pots when you have a survival suit on. So that's something you would put on if there was an actual emergency. There's still concerns, though, about fishing. I, I know that the, the TSB, Transportation Safety Board, and the Coast Guard, there's still a concern that there are a lot of people in fishing who are not doing, they're not, the practices aren't as safe as they should be. And you can just see that, I mean, every year, there's at least two or three people who die lobstering, uh, you know, fall overboard. So, I mean, you can be as safe as you want, you can try your hardest, but it's still just an inherently dangerous occupation. But did you get a sense that uh, after this, people, at least in those communities where the five guys came from, uh, are looking more carefully at things like um, working with personal flotation devices, even when the weather's not that bad? I mean, you can get swept off the, the deck. A PFD might help you for a while or a survival suit when you get into a terrible storm, such as the one that took down the Miss Alley. Any word or sign of that? I can only say through uh, sort of anecdotal evidence in, in conversations I've had that people said that it's more prevalent than people are thinking about it more, um, you know, that they should have the PFDs on and that they should play things safer. But whether it's actually happening, uh, who knows? I mean, I, I couldn't say, I guess is what I mean. What's your next project? <laughs> I, I don't have a book project right now. I'm still looking for a new topic. It's so much work that you just have to find something that you really want to dig into for a couple of years. And, you know, I, I haven't found that yet. Well, Quentin, thank you very much for joining us on Book Me. Thank you very much. Quentin Casey is the author of The Sea Was in Their Blood, The Disappearance of the Miss Alley's Five-Man Crew. The audiobook version can be purchased and downloaded from any of the following sites, audiobooks.com, audible.com, or kobo.com. Now, if you prefer to listen to the audiobook version at your local library, just ask a librarian for assistance in accessing it. Mr. Casey is also the author of Joshua Slocum, The Man Who Sailed Around the World. To hear past episodes of our podcast, go to bookmepodcast.ca or just pop book me with an exclamation mark in your search engine. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Our producer is Robin Grant. Lynn Fox keeps our voices from going wild because she's our technical director. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. Read.